0: It's said that your real life begins where your comfort
1: zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson.
2: I feel like lately with all of the changes and Chaos and evolutions and questions and uncertainty and madness and beauty on the planet, everything that has been happening uh, here in 2020 at the time of this recording, it's created what I've noticed something very interesting around happiness. And I've been looking at friends and colleagues and acquaintances who've been uh, getting married or eloping or buying houses or cars or things like that. And it seems like happiness has kind of become. A little bit of a dirty word right now, and I know that that might sound like whoa, happiness is a dirty word. But I've just noticed that there seems to be a lot of a mentality going around of struggle and being on the front lines, and really kind of just being in a space of, yeah, it's not time to thrive, it's not time to be happy, it's time to do the work, it's time to be an activist, it's time to suffer together and get through this together. So, I'm curious when when I bring up this idea of happiness being uh, a dirty word. How do you how do you feel about that, Taylor? what's your What's your response to that?
1: I think that there's a you're, you're spot on. Everyone feels like this is a time to be miserable and to commiserate with each other. But I, other than that, I actually fully disagree. And I think that this is a time where it's an opportunity to figure out where our values really lie. A time, and opportunity to figure out what really makes us happy and brings us joy a lot of the individuals that I work with have met the societal checklist of all the things that we're told will make us happy. And then they're not because they haven't figured out what happiness means to them. And so you can have all those successful quote unquote things, but you could still be unhappy. So figuring out what happiness means to you is a great way to start leaning into that. And I think now, specifically at this time, when we have people being at home, spending more time with their families, really figuring out where they fit in the world, right? That that activism. Is that something that, yes, we should be leaning into that, but is it something that also brings you happiness and joy? This is a time to lean in and understand who you really are and what really helps you be happy in your life because it's not a one-size-fits-all formula. And I think in conjunction with that, This misery that's going on is not a one size fits all formula either. And we need to be able to look at that and understand that it is okay to be happy during this time. And you can still be providing for causes. You can still be a support system. Being happy doesn't mean that you're above or you're beyond everyone else. Being happy means that you have a security in who you are And what brings you joy and peace? And that allows you to be your best self and bring your best self to the relationships, the situations, the workplace, wherever it may be that you are showing up. It allows you to bring your best self and lift everyone else up. And I think that that is the beauty of this time right now.
0: Wow. I feel like we could wrap up this episode now. (laughs) That was so eloquent. And I actually really loved the phrase that you used, societal checklist what does that mean for you? How do you, And is this a term that you've been hearing? Because I don't think I've been hearing that before.
1: It's not a term I've heard, but it's a term I've coined. So, I so love it. <laughs>
0: it's
1: Thank so you. good.
0: You should, you should take ownership out of coining that.
1: <laughs> so societal checklist. Essentially, if we look at these things that society has told us will make us happy, and I'm going to say they'll make us happy, but especially in America where I live, we are. We feel like success equals happiness. So this is kind of a checklist of what we have been told. It's been ingrained in us since childhood that we should do these things and it will equal success and aka equal happiness. So the first one is you should go to school and get a degree. Then you should find a great and terrific partner and spouse. Then you should probably buy your dream house. You should probably have a family. Get that great job. Make a lot of money. Or have that great career as an entrepreneur, have a very successful business. And once you have that societal checklist, then you'll be quote unquote successful and aka happy. And what we see is that we strive for this checklist because we've bought into, I'm going to be pretty bold here, we've bought into the lie. We've bought into the lie that that equals happiness. And so we strive for that. We push really hard for that. And we have this mindset of, I'll be happy when... And then when you hit those checklists and you're like, hey, I should be happy now, and you're not, then it feels like, well, what's wrong with me? This is, this is what's working for everyone else, right? I've believed this since I was a little kid. I've been told this my whole life. So if I have all these things, I should be grateful. I should be happy. And I'm not. And I see other people that seem like they are happy. And what's wrong with me? And maybe I'm broken. And maybe I'm hurting. And that is the, the painful truth about the societal checklist. Is that it actually doesn't bring happiness? It shields us from finding out what happiness truly means to us as individuals.
2: What do you think, uh, Taylor? Is the is the psychological underpinnings of having this societal checklist? You know, if it's something that's reinforced by our parents or maybe uh, religious figures in our life or society, underneath it is the desire to check off all of these boxes on that proverbial list. You, do you find it's leaning into yearning for love and acceptance or security and safety, like psychologically underneath all this, what do you think is going on for people when they're trying to check off all those boxes?
1: I think that it is a acceptance and meeting the expectations. So our brain, as you guys know, back in the day, we were wired for protection and we could only protect ourselves if we were part of society and part of a community. So our brain still, even now that we are not necessarily like, okay, there's a tiger coming at us and I have to have my team of hunters around me and we can take down the tiger and we're safe and we're protected. Now we don't necessarily worry about that so much, but our brain is still wired that way. And so then we're afraid that we are not going to be a part of society. And so then we feel like we're going to be outcast and we can't have that because in our brain we're like, oh no, can't have that. That doesn't work. We won't be able to thrive and survive unless society accepts us. And so here's this checklist that's right there. It's like, hey, if you do these things, you'll be accepted and then you'll be happy and you'll be a part of the team. And so I think there's that kind of underpinning that, which leans into what you just said about that love and that acceptance and meeting those expectations of other people. But I think also within that is we want it to be easy. I'm just going to say that. Like we yeah. want we want it to be easy. So here's this custom-made checklist ready for you. It'll make you happy. And we want to believe that because we want it to be easy. We want to say, oh, if I do X, Y, and Z, then my life will be put together and I will finally feel happy. And I think that we just want that. We want that ease. And we've been told to believe that. I mean, I, I look at going to college and getting a degree, right? Growing up, that was an expectation. So there's this expectation you should go to school, get a degree. So if I don't do that, I'm an outcast in society. So there's that component. But then also I was told that if you get a degree, then you'll, you're will you guaranteed a good job. And if you're guaranteed a good job, then you're guaranteed large amounts of money and you can take care of yourself, take care of your friends, take care of your family, all of these pieces. And that comes back to the society piece. But it's so easy. All I have to do is go get a degree and the rest of my life falls into place, which is simply not the case. But we've all bought into that.
0: Absolutely. You get very fired up about this. And I love that. It sounds like you're so passionate about this subject matter. And I'm curious, what what is it that... Kind of brought this passion on for you? Is there something that you experienced or you witnessed other people experiencing and struggling with? Like, how did you get into this work?
1: I got into this work because I realized, well, I realized the societal checklist down the line. Didn't realize it was something that was contributing to my unhappiness until I really took a, a microscope to it. But my own journey is I was so, I was so unhappy. And I was so bitter and so angry, so angry at the world. And I was just full of this resentment. And I could look back at being younger, even like high school age, and I was happy and go lucky and hyper and outgoing and all of these things. And then as I became an adult, life kind of came and knocked me down, as it does for some people. And I didn't consciously know that I was becoming a person that was so angry and unhappy. And my husband, bless him, he had a phrase that was, hell hath no fury like Taylor mildly inconvenienced.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing.
1: And the thing is, is, it was so true, like any minor little thing. And I would just lose my temper at the drop of a hat. I was so angry. And really what it was, was this piece of entitlement. Like I felt like I was entitled to be happy and I shouldn't have to fight for this and I shouldn't have to work hard for it. I follow the checklist. But then also I had this victim mentality. Like I had gone from being somebody who was happy and go lucky and had control of their life to kind of get knocked down a little bit and just so easily falling into this like, well, the world should bend for me and it's not. So now I'm angry. But when I pulled that back, And the story there is my husband. I wish he could say, I wish I could say that he told me this once and it was like, ding, 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 light bulb moment. We're changing our life. But it really wasn't. He told me this a few times over several years and it took repeating it to me several times for me to finally go, okay, I need to make a change. And what it was is we actually knew each other when I was young, happy, and hyper and outgoing and just this vibrant person. And we had gotten married after life had kind of kicked me around, and he would say to me, "Where did you go? You used to be so happy."
0: Wow. Yeah. How did you feel when he did? He literally ask you that. Oh those yeah. Exact words. Those exact How words. How did that feel to hear that?
1: Well, the first four times <laughs> over a span of many years, but the first four times. I was in that victim and entitlement space. So I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're, you, it's. I wanted to blame him. I wanted to put it on him. I didn't want to face the facts that I was unhappy and angry all the time. And then the last time he had to say it to me, I was in a space where I could kind of look at it and go, you know what? I feel like I'm at war. I'm constantly trying and like seeing that these people are quote unquote, happy, and they're following this checklist. And I'm trying, I'm clawing my way up this checklist and this ladder, and I'm so unhappy. And I feel like I'm at war with myself. And I also feel like I'm at war with everyone else. And I just want to feel peace. And I just want to be happy. And at that point, things started to shift for me because I had taken myself out of the victim and entitlement mentality. And I really just started Googling how to be happy which is silly, but I did it anyways. And I Googled how to be happy, just hoping for an article, a YouTube video, a podcast episode, something to teach me how to be happy. And there was some stuff, but it was mostly like inspirational, motivational, not like tactical application. And I struggled. I went up and down on this teeter-totter of this anger and bitterness. And on the other side was happiness and fear. Like, who am I if I'm not angry and protecting myself? Who am I if I'm not striving for this big checklist? Who am I if I achieve this checklist and I'm still not happy, right? It's all these pieces of this fear that would come in and that would make me feel vulnerable and then the anger would flare up to protect me. And I finally realized, this is a very long journey, but I finally realized that the root cause of all of this was that I believed an expectation. And I believe two expectations. One, the societal checklist. And two, that happiness is inherent. And I looked at everyone else and they were also happy. And when I was striving for the checklist and everyone else was hitting their checklist and they were happy and I wasn't, because I believe they were inherently happy, I felt like I was wrong or I was broken. And then that hit that fear component and then I'd be angry and defensive about it. But I finally realized that if I didn't, if I changed the expectation, if I changed that maybe that checklist wasn't what was gonna make me happy. You can still be successful. You can still chase it, but you can't have it with that mindset of it's going to make me happy. And then if I can change the expectation that happiness maybe isn't inherent, maybe it's something I can work towards, that put it back in my control. And when it's in my control, I can take the action steps to start moving towards that. And that's how I kind of came to the space of like, yeah, we have these expectations and they're we think they're going to make us happy or we think that they should naturally, we should naturally be happy. But in fact, it's these expectations that make it feel like it's outside of our control or make it feel like we have to strive for more when if we can come back, look at it, and own it for ourselves, we can take the steps to find what happiness means to us individually.
2: Expectation is actually something we we wrote about in our newsletter this week and have been really talking about lately. And it, it's awesome that you bring up expectations, Taylor. I'm curious if You feel that expectations in general are something that we should practice letting go of, you know, trying to to create or manipulate some future projection? Or do expectations in your lexicon play any kind of positive role? Or do you feel like we should just practice letting go of all of them?
1: I love this question. I've never been asked it before. I'm one of those people that I love to strive for goals. And I believe that a core component of happiness is progression. And a goals are a great way to get there. And so, if you have an expectation for yourself and you have defined what you want your life and happiness to look like for you, and you have an expectation around that, I think that's okay and can be very helpful. But I do think if you hold on to those expectations too hard, with the I need to do X, Y, and Z, and then I'll. Be happy, or I'll hit my goal, or whatever it is, without the flexibility of I have an expectation this is going to work, but I don't need to hold on to the timeline. I don't need to hold on tight to the action items. I'm not saying don't take action, not that at all, but I don't need to hold on tight to the action items of what I think it should be. Whatever comes up that I need to handle, I can. And the expectation then shifts from I know and I expect myself to be happy and live in this world and be the best I can versus the expectation that whatever's going around us or whatever we're striving for is going to be the thing that makes us happy and be the best that we can, if that if that made sense.
2: Yeah. It it, it also brought up kind of a side consideration. And this is something that I am still, uh, I don't want to say struggling with. I, I, I'm dancing with it, I think is a, a much more accurate term, is this relationship between uh, contentment and desire in the sense of, if I really get into gratitude and feeling contented about what is happening in my life, the the roof over my head, bathing in clean water, having good food every day, there's a part of me that's like, you know what, this is enough. This is great. And then there's a part of me that the desire for, you know, I would like to have a farm with more animals. I would like to have a bigger piece of property or, or whatever it is. I, I think it for me, it's just this internal interesting relationship of contentment and gratitude versus desire and the energy that keeps moving us forward toward those goals. So how do you see that relationship and how do you balance those things for yourself?
1: I love that relationship because it is something that I personally do struggle with. And I struggle with it in a couple of components here. I struggle with it when I see other people go, well, I should just be happy I should just be content. I should just be grateful and have gratitude for what I have in my life. And that should be enough. And what I see happen is that, yeah, that's great. We totally should. And that contentment is awesome. But contentment is a very thin line between comfort. And when we start to get a little too comfortable, we start to feel stagnant. And when we start to feel stagnant, the world feels like it's passing us by and kind of going back to your initial question about, hey, how can I be happy in this world in the space we're in right now? There's a lot of stagnation happening, a lot of pumping the brakes, pulling back and being like, OK, well, there's just a lot of information, a lot of things right now. I just need to take it all in, which is appropriate. But at the same time, we've been staying stagnant for so long and not taking action that it has completely shifted us from a space of progression, which I believe is a core component. Action kills fear. Progression leads to happiness, right? You have to be moving forward. We're human beings. We all have that desire for more. But when we lean back into the comfort or the contentment too far... And contentment's the fine line, right? You want to be content with your life, but it's okay to strive for more. But when we lean back into it too far, we start to feel stagnant. And when we as humans feel stagnant, we start to feel depressed and we lean into habits and things that do not support our life and a life of happiness. It supports a life of stagnation because we feel like that's comfort and we're trading comfort and stagnation for everything else. And I do think there's a duality there where as humans, we believe it's got to be one or the other. Like you should be grateful and you should be content and that should be enough where, yeah, it is enough, but that doesn't mean I can't want more because I'm a human being and I'm wired to want more. And my ability to show up in this life and to provide and have an impact on the world is based on my ability and my desire for more and to provide more to my community.
0: I've been reading the book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Jason, I know you've read that. Taylor, have you read that book?
1: I have not. It is on my list.
0: (laughs) I'm so curious once you do read it what you think because I'm about a quarter of the way through and, and Jason could speak to more of it if he recalls. and. We actually referenced this in one episode, which we'll link to in the show notes. And for the listener, we have show notes for every single episode. You can learn more about Taylor and the books that we're talking about, anything else that we reference in this episode. You can find that at WellEvator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. And in one of the resources that we'll list is this book. And so far, it seems like the premise is that a lot of us care too much. and kind of focusing too much on what we want and and like putting too much like pressure on ourselves. and you know, going through the societal checklist, as you've talked about, Taylor, can actually be bad for our mental health because it causes us to become overly attached. and we start chasing a mirage of happiness and satisfaction as as Mark Manson says. And he basically concludes that the key to a good life is just not caring as much. It's caring a little bit less and only caring about what is true and immediate and important. So based on that little part of his book, Taylor, have you found that to be true as well? And Jason, I I would love for you to jump in and anything else you recall from that book too. Uh, For me, I definitely have found that to be true.
1: And I have found as well that, yeah, we do care way too much what other people think. And we chase things. And it goes back to what I was saying on the expectation and, oh, I mentally my brain is wired to want to be accepted in society. So we're hardwired to care, but we start chasing things because it means status or we start chasing things because then our parents will love us. We start chasing things because it means that our neighbor will see how much better we are or whatever that may be. And that's when we care way too much and we shift from progression and goals and becoming our best selves to someone who's just fighting the fight, really. Like if we look back at my own story of feeling like I was at war, you're at war when you do that. You're at war with everyone else and trying to prove yourself versus feeling peace in your own your own space. That's my opinion, at least.
0: Right. I mean, I found that to be true as well. And actually the reason that I started reading this book, which I was very familiar with this book, so much so that I thought that I had read it already. <laughs> and then I picked it up a few days ago and realized, oh, I've actually never read a page of this book. But it was suggested to me because of something that I hadn't talked to Jason about. He was he was on his little mini vacation when this happened. But a few days ago, we actually got a negative, a very like critical kind of mean or rude comment on our podcast. It was the first negative review that we've ever received. Oh, I haven't on seen iTunes. this.
2: I haven't seen this yet.
0: And it was kind of like um this person was was saying they didn't like us and they didn't like our personality, me and Jason. And I, when I first read it, it really stung. It really hurt to read those because it wasn't like it was constructive criticism. You know, there's a lot of things people could say, like, "Oh, their episodes are too long, right?" And we can, we could try to maybe adjust or do, even though we really like doing long episodes, we certainly could do some short episodes every now and then, right? And so, when it comes to feedback, there's a, a lot of things that we can learn from other people's feedback for us. Like criticism isn't always a bad thing. It doesn't always mean you're being rejected. But in this case, this review was saying that this person didn't like us. And and I'm reading that thinking that that hurts. It it hurts when someone's like, hey, I don't like you and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Like it's not like we're going to change our personalities and we we can't really do too much or we could try. I mean in my past and i probably still do this at times but certainly in my past i would change try to change things about myself if somebody said they didn't like them and i've really struggled with that a lot over the years as a content creator so i decided that the way i could work through my emotions around reading this review is to go ask how other people handle negative reviews about their podcast so i went into one of the podcast groups that i'm in on facebook And just got vulnerable and I was like, hey, I received a negative comment and it was hurtful. What do you do when you feel hurt? And I actually received amazing responses from other podcasters, so much so that I'm planning on writing a blog post summarizing all the great advice that people shared. But probably the best piece of advice I was given was to read this book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, because that's one of the big messages there is not caring as much about these type of things. And I'm curious to, since Jason hasn't read this comment yet, I'm, I'm curious what he would think. It's really not that bad. I have a feeling Jason would be like, I don't give a fuck. Like that's his reaction <laughs> I'm predicting. <laughs> but I would love to hear from both of you. Like, How do you react to criticism? And And going back to what you're saying, Taylor, about how it's really ingrained in us, because we often care about what people think, as like this old form of survival. Like we want to be part of the group. We don't want to be the outcast. And so when somebody says something mean to us, it's like, I feel like maybe our chameleon brains, as some people refer to them, like they, they, is that the right term? Chameleon brain? No. Um, Monkey
2: mind, reptile brain.
0: Reptile, Uh, not, not chameleon reptile. mm -hmm. Thank you. But it, it is funny. Chameleon actually is about changing, but the, it's like the, the old part of us wants to say, I can change because I want to be accepted so badly so that I survive. And yet, if you're constantly trying to be a chameleon, if you're always trying to change and adapt to your situation, I think it actually can be very detrimental to your mental health. So I'd love to hear from both of you about what you do in these cases and what you've learned from these type of scenarios where you get criticism that hurts.
2: I think, you know, for me wit it's it's something that I've continually had to practice ever since becoming I suppose more prominent or visible through uh, social media and the TV series and the things that certainly you and I have experienced being content creators and hosting our own videos and shows and whatnot is that if I zoom back and look at the comments and Input and feedback that I've received over the years, it's been overwhelmingly positive, or even just maybe headed toward neutral. You know, the ratio of good, positive, uplifting, supportive comments versus negative ones, or ones that don't provide any useful or critical feedback, that ratio is skewed very heavily toward the positive and the beneficial. Those moments, though, that we get comments like this. I've had to realize that it's not my job to please everyone and nor can I, and nor will I ever. And that, you know, opinions are like buttholes. Everyone's got one and that's okay. Uh, Just because someone's opinion is, is drastically different and they don't find something about me appealing. I mean, it, I've had so many similar comments on YouTube and when I was on Cooking Channel and even reviews on Amazon about you know my books. And again, we're not going to please everyone. And when I'm creating art or creating content or as we're doing this podcast, I realize that there are going to be some people that simply don't like it. And your expectation, Whitney, that I would probably read this comment and, and not give a fuck is probably accurate. It's probably <laughs> accurate. Yeah.
0: And, but do you feel like, When you read this book, were you like, oh, yeah, I already do this? Or do you think you were influenced by this book and other things? Like, How did you learn not to give a fuck, Jason?
2: (laughs) Well, I want to say I'm by no means an avatar or a bodhisattva in the sense that things don't get to me. Of course, things get to me. But I think in terms of a public forum like this, where we're receiving feedback and comments with our, our brands and our public personas and the teachings and the content we do, I think Mark Manson's work has helped. I really admire him as a writer. I love his perspective and his tone and and the voice that he uses. It's very open, very direct, very conversational, where I feel like he's talking to me and I like that. But he definitely has reframed things in terms of going back to what Taylor was talking about with his checklist because for me for a long time it was, you know, if I just get this TV show and you know become a celebrity chef and you know, nutrition expert and I'm on these magazine covers and I'm making multiple six figures and I have this kind of girlfriend and I live in this zip code and all the BS that Taylor was so brilliantly describing, he really talks about that in this book and he brings up specific artists that I admire and have listened to, musical artists and whatnot, and how they had a similar experience of you know getting through all the checklist and then realizing that in one case they were miserable, in the other case their dreams didn't come true. And they found happiness and contentment in spite of their dreams not coming true. And for me, I guess the long answer, Whitney, is, is having this perspective of, I feel like I can put my desires and my wants out in the universe, but I, there's no guarantee they're going to come to fruition. And going back to the expectation conversation, it's like, okay, if exactly what I want doesn't happen, Can I find happiness and fulfillment even when, yeah, my expectations and and more than expectations, my demands of life? Because one thing that I've had to work on over the years is I was in the mode many, many years of demanding things of life. Like talk about privilege, right? Like, no, you owe me this. I've worked hard. I've put the years in. I've put the money in. I've hired the coaches. I've done the seminars. I've bled for this. You owe me. And I realized that looking at life, God, universe, and saying, you owe me is not a good approach to living.
0: Hear, hear. On that note, Taylor, A, I I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And B, we recently talked about it on an episode how we have mixed feelings about the practice of manifestation and visualization and things like this. And there's a side of both me and Jason that has used that, has felt that it's worked for us, has seen a lot of like positive momentum, right? Like if I just focus on something that I want badly enough, it'll happen. But there's also a side of it that A, might be to do with privilege. And then B, comes back around to Jason's point about like demanding things like who are we to believe that just because we want something, we deserve it? What have you found in your studying and and teaching on happiness that is related to manifestation and visualization? Yeah. So I, I love this question too. My first
1: steps into my personal development journey was I actually attended a conference and the person started teaching vision boards. And if you could see my body language at that time, I mean, I leaned down in my seat and was like, oh, here we go. Another person who just says, put it on the wall and wish it into being. I'm not about that. I'm a worker. I, I like action and I like progress and I like moving forward. And I feel like just putting something on the, up on the wall and wishing for it is not the way to go about it. So that's kind of how I feel about vision boards. However, that being said, I have found that vision boards do work when you connect them with action and not just the action of, I put it on the wall, not just the action of, oh, I've I look at it every day, but the action of, okay, so I'm sitting here, I'm looking at one of my things, I'm thinking about it, I'm saying it out loud, I'm telling myself the story, all the things to help it go through your reticular activating system so that you can be more likely to look for opportunities. But then also having a piece of paper next to me and saying, Okay, what actions do I need to take to be able to get what I want? And I think that also partners quite well with this demanding right? Because if we're demanding it happen and we're just putting up and wishing on the wall, that is demanding. And that is the sense of entitlement that's really not great. But if you're taking action and you're asking, okay, what t- what is it that I need to do here to help me? And I'm not going to say get my goal, to help me progress in the right direction towards what I want. Because that takes off the expectation of if I don't get it, I'm a failure. But it does add the accountability of, I can take action towards this every day and I can learn and I can grow. And there's a higher likelihood that that is going to happen for me because I'm taking action towards it.
2: How do we rewire ourselves to enjoy the journey and not be so fixated on that goal and that destination you're talking about? Because I feel like this is very endemic to to humans in general of, once I, of course, once I get the thing, then I think I'll be happy. It doesn't guarantee, but I think I'll be happy. But the fixation on the goal and not the enjoyment and the growth that comes with the journey, how do we recalibrate ourselves to actually enjoy the journey and not be so myopically fixated on the goal and only that?
1: I love this. So this is actually going to tie into the original question as well of of how I personally deal with rejection or negative commentary or things like that, but they're both very closely correlated. I use what I call a success book and I put in it any successes that I have. So it could be that I got a goal and it's great. I celebrate that and I have it recorded. So when I'm having a bad day and I feel like I'm a worthless piece of shit, I can pull up that book and go, actually, you know what? I'm kind of a badass. I get stuff done. So there's that component of when you hear negative commentary or you're like, wow, people don't like me. I go back to my book and I'm like, actually, yeah, people do. And I do great things. And here's all the thank you cards I've received or here's printouts of my positive reviews on my show. And I can, I have a record of that because we're high likely to forget the positive things and remember the negative. But in conjunction with that, a shift in our mindset of that the goal is not the success, but your ability to learn and grow every day is. So if you can track those successes, air quotes around that, those achievements, whatever you want to call them, if you can take those and track those every day, it's not so much about the goal; it's what you learned and how you grew to get there. And that is a big shift for a lot of people. But it's as simple as tracking that every day of what was a success today. Well, maybe I didn't hit goal X, Y, and Z, but I did step one, and that's a big that's a big thing. Like if we talk about where. All three of us are podcasters here, right? I know so many people are like, I want a podcast. And it feels so far away for them. And they, they take 10 steps. We know it can kind of be complicated. Like, oh, how do we work the system? What microphone do I get? How do I set up my studio? It can be quite a few things. And they slowly work for that process. But then they're like, well, I'm not happy. Or I, I'm not there yet. I haven't launched yet. And they beat themselves up when if you can take a shift and look at that and go, okay, so today I set up my studio. And then the next day, ah, I researched microphones. I learned and I grew. And I think that shift is what can really help us still achieve and have that desire, as you mentioned before, Jason, that desire for more. We can go for that without beating ourselves up in the process and without feeling like we're failures and without the expectation that that thing is going to make us happy. And I would also tie into that. I'm going to change gears just a little bit, but tracking your successes daily is part of what I call a happiness habit, like happiness habits. And when you do those things every day and they're not with an expectation of connection to goals or connection to business or connection to any of these things, and they're just things that you can do habitually to help you be happier, that helps a lot as well. And writing your daily successes or keeping a success book is one of those habits.
2: This is a macro level question and it goes back to i guess even deeper than the original question of of how do we find happiness and fulfillment during during this time when so many people are saying that we we ought not to or we don't deserve it i think that unhappiness and sadness depression anxiety mental health issues these are things that are incredibly rampant you know not here just in america but i think worldwide if we just look at what's going on with people's mental health and emotional wellness for a person who say doesn't know what makes them happy or doesn't have necessarily a dream or a goal they're working toward? And this might just be a very fundamental one-on-one question, but I also think it's very profound because if we look around this world, I think there's a lot of people in this mentality of when you sit down and say like, what's your dream or what are you working toward or what do you really want to be doing? Who do you want to be? They don't really have an answer. And so I guess from a foundational level, how do we cultivate a sense of our own happiness when a, maybe it's something we've never been taught. B, we've never taken the time to actually you know, reflect on it or meditate on it. And if people are, proverbially speaking, lost in the woods and don't know where to find it, what are some basic steps to recommend to people that, that just don't know what that is?
1: Yeah, you're spot on. It's a rough time in the world right now, but even pre-2020 and the life that we are and the space we're in now those things you mentioned about the depression, the anxiety, the feeling like I don't know what my purpose is or I don't know what makes me happy, that's, that was rampant even then. And I like to, you'll notice as we continue to talk and get to know each other more, I'm very formulaic, which is ironic because I'm like, don't follow the checklist, but a formula can sometimes help. So what I like to do is look at a couple of things. One, just because somebody else has it figured out or they know their purpose? A doesn't mean that it's not going to change, and B doesn't mean that you're a mess up if you don't have that. And I think there's a lot of this like, oh, what do you want to be or you know what's your purpose and figure that out and find it And people are like, I don't even know I, I don't even know who I am. I'm just so stressed all the time that I can't even focus on that, but they do focus on it and they contribute to that that, that depression and that sadness even more. But then B how are we expected to figure out what makes us happy or figure out what our purpose is or any of these components if we don't know who we are first? So going back to this formulaic idea, I have a concept that I like to lean into, which is your identity plus your vision plus your mindset plus leadership equals achievement, progression, and happiness. And the thought there being that you can't You can't have a vision, which is the second piece. You can't have a vision for what you want if you don't know who you are. And so there's a lot of deep things that you can kind of figure out. But as silly as it sounds, I lean into like personality quizzes. Find out your Myers-Briggs. Find out your Enneagram. Find out your Four Tendencies by Gretchen Rubin. Find your love language. Find these pieces that can help you kind of go, ah, this is how I function in the world. Because when you can kind of have an idea of your templates and how you function in the world, then you can stop looking at everyone else and go, oh, and this, I don't mean this as a judgment, but, oh, you're like that tenant. We'll even go here. Oh, you're a Slytherin. Well, I'm a Gryffindor. That's why we don't see eye to eye.
2: Like, (laughs) (laughs) Perfect.
1: (laughs) But But the thing is, is you can find... Those things that kind of help you go, this is, is this how I see the world? I'm not saying treat it like a horoscope and be like, yep, this is who I am. This is who I am now. And I can't accept anything else. But I am saying, treat it like, is this true? Is this something that I've learned about myself? And if so, do I want to be this way? Or if it's something that's not changeable, how can I leverage it to my advantage instead of trying to work around it or push through it? Because everybody else thinks differently. And I'm going to use a personal example here, my Enneagram. Just barely found out about Enneagrams. Not a huge expert by any means. But I have often felt like there's people that I just don't get. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't understand that mentality or I don't understand that type of behavior. It just doesn't click for me. And in the past, I would be like, okay, well... I got to fix myself, Whitney, what you were saying. Oh, I've got to change this. I've got to change this to try and be able to understand that or connect with that person or be liked by that person. And in knowing my identity and those components be like, oh, I'm actually an Enneagram eight. Uh, yeah, there's no way I'm going to think like that person because I'm pretty sure they are not, they don't have these similar traits that I do. And that's okay. It's not a us versus them. Do not want to go there because that's just more anger, bitterness, depression, sadness, and all of that. But it's more of a, this is who I am. This is my templates. This is how I function in the world, and then leaning on that to help you figure out those next steps. And that would be in the formulas case the vision, and that's answering you, Jason, in the sense of who am I? That's identity. But then, what is my purpose? What do I want to do? And we're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Our whole lives. But the thing is, is nobody ever focuses on who are you, and what do you love, and what makes you happy. And I think having an understanding of kind of who you are in the world not even in the world, who you are to yourself, and looking at that with a positive spin and being like, yeah, this is me. Yeah, I'm not like that person, and they, they're they okay. That's great. And I'm not like that person, and I love myself anyways. It's fine. But having that identity, I think, is a a crucial point to be able to move to that next step of the formula of the vision. And I hope that answered. I kind of feel like I rambled a little bit there, but hopefully that made sense.
2: No, I thought it was wonderful. and 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 I just love this cuz like one question leads to more questions and more questions and <laughs> for bo- for both of you doing the work right and and we all obviously have different modalities and books and quizzes and coaches and seminars and and it's clear that you know the three of us are are really committed and passionate about doing the work for for ourselves on ourselves sometimes though I I have a thing that comes up for me I'm curious for, for both of you how this feels of like there are so many layers of conditioning and belief systems and self criticism and old, old, old stuff that is installed so deep in my subconscious, my psyche. And at times I'm like, how many freaking layers do I have to go through and decondition to get to the core of who I really am? You know, there are moments where mostly it's passionate, mostly exciting, but there's like, my God, there's so much work to decondition myself and break through those limiting beliefs and break through the old conditioning from from childhood or maybe even before that, depending on what you believe. How do you both deal with that? And, and does that even come up for either of you? Like, oh, here's another layer. Okay, how many layers are there?
0: I mean, I, I think that we've established in some of our episodes, like one of them that comes to mind is is the one with Luke's story, which we'll link to for the listener. If you're interested in, in going down the rabbit hole of our almost 100 episodes now. Um, we did this episode with Luke Story, and we'll link to that in the show notes at WellEvator.com for you to check out. When we were talking with him, when, one of my favorite parts was when the three of us were sharing how this idea of health and wellness can be this never-ending journey because there's always something new to discover. There's so many developments. There's new products coming out. There's new techniques. There's so many books. and all three of us related to one another and that feeling of it's kind of fun and I don't see it as a destination. I see it as that journey and I feel a lot of joy just learning more about myself and humanity and psychology and, and just trying new things. I think the experiment is really fun for me, but I also realize it's not fun for everybody. And I think a lot of people are in resistance to it. It might be exhausting for them to continuously be trying things and tweaking things. And you know what? This actually reminds me of something my friend was sharing with me yesterday about her son. And she has been really paying attention during this time of quarantine where he's at home and she's thinking about his education and his development as a child and the next steps. It's such an intense time for parents right now. A lot of decisions have to be made. And during this period of massive uncertainty where nobody knows what's going to happen. Right. And she discovered that he really loves fixing things. He is a kid that gets so excited about getting a hammer and nail and, and like, repairing something or building something like that just lights him up and he'll dive into that challenge and he'll be very motivated. But when it came to some other things and and specifically like school, she was noticing like certain subjects he had so much resistance to and he just did not enjoy doing those things. And I was sitting there thinking as I was listening to her, It's such a shame in a way that a lot of us go through life kind of feeling like we're forced and in some ways almost literally being forced. If we look at the school systems in general, at least in the United States and in most schools, we are are forced to study certain topics and memorize things and do things in school that we don't really want to do. But the combination of the pressure from our teachers and our classmates and our parents or, or our parental figures. And these ideas of like, if we don't get the good grades, then we'll, we're going to be punished either right now or in the future. We won't be able to get into the school that we want. We might not get the career that we want. And there's like so much at stake all the time. So speaking of trying to shape yourself into something, I know I struggle with this a lot. And my heart goes out to kids as well as adults who feel like they have to force themselves into doing something in order to get the results that they want. And I think that ties back into this idea, Jason, of like, well, do you enjoy studying these things like the three of us do? I mean, I love reading. I read every single day. I, I'm just so into books. I'm constantly reading them, you know. Jason, you really love books, and yet you read at a different, completely different Pace than I do. You don't seem to have as much joy and interest in reading as frequently and as much as I do, right? But that doesn't mean that you don't enjoy it. You're just kind of going back to what Taylor was saying, like you just approach it very differently. And I think this is a big topic that I'm excited to address and hear what Taylor has to say about because it does come back to this, like, are you forcing yourself to do something A, because other people are doing it or be because you feel like you have to do it to get a result. And I think if you can step back and ask yourself, does this process bring you joy? Because if it doesn't, then why would you even bother doing it if life is more about the journey than the destination?
1: I think that is so awesome. You just put it so eloquently that honestly, I don't know how much more I could add to that. I completely agree. <laughs> um, and I, I just feel like we... It just goes back to those expectations. But I think, Jason, and what you were saying about there's just layer after layer after layer, Whitney, you hit it right on the head. You have to enjoy that process and look at it as, ah, it's a present. I get to uncover one more thing about me and adjust for it. I'm not even going to say solve for it because it's not that we are – we should not be in personal development, self-help, and I'm actually – Just right now, my brain's like, I don't think we should call it self-help anymore because self-help almost feels like it needs to be fixed, whereas personal development means it's an ongoing process. You're developing as a person. And I think that mindset shift is a big key component there.
0: Actually, that's another thing that I loved so far in The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck is that Mark Manson says that part of the problem is that we're constantly trying to Change ourselves, which means that there's something wrong with us. Like the idea of fixing something or tweaking something is saying that we're not good enough as we are. And he said that's a huge issue in the personal development space. And even even that phrase, that term, personal development—it's like, well, I see it as a positive thing, right? It's like I like to develop. But as I mentioned earlier, I've spent a lot of my life not feeling good enough. And maybe, and this is something I'm as on my journey of self-discovery, which maybe is a better word than self-help. It's like a discovery process. I wonder sometimes, do I enjoy doing this because I enjoy the process of changing because change means that maybe I'll be more accepted, right? So it's interesting because I do find joy in it, but sometimes you have to examine like, why do you find joy in something and where did that joy come from? Did you like program yourself to feel joy you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think it's such a fine balance though. This is the thing. It's,
1: oh my gosh, my brain's like, wow, there's so many things to say. Like it is such a tender line again between are you doing this because it brings you joy and happiness and it's something that helps you become a better person and step into your, your space to make an impact in the world or are you doing it because you feel you should? But then there's also this component of sometimes For us to progress forward, we have to do the uncomfortable stuff. So if we're peeling back a layer and it's like, oh, shit, I don't want to have to deal with this. This is hard. Then we have to look at our reason why. Are we doing this because we feel like we need to be fixed? Then at that point, yeah, it is going to be hard. If you're doing it because you want to learn and grow and be your best version of yourself, then maybe you do have to do some hard work to feel like you can achieve what you're wanting to achieve. But it's such a fine line because That could easily be construed to the other way of like, well, if it's something you dislike doing or it's hard, you shouldn't ever do it. And at that point, like, well, hell, I don't want to ever do
2: taxes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to clean my house, but I also feel way better. This is a perfect, good example. A good analogy, I guess. I don't like cleaning my house, but I feel 10 times better. I'm more mentally, physically, and emotionally clear when my house is clean. Yep. So- there's that line.
0: We can all relate to that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but it's that line because if I don't like cleaning my house, yeah, I could never clean my house and then it would be a dust pile and that would impact, that environment would impact my ability to show up as my best self. So it's that fine balance. And honestly, I think that just comes down to the individual and figuring out what that balance is for them as a person.
2: I mean, this also brings up to me, well, it brings up a couple of things is is the concept of delayed happiness or delayed satisfaction in the sense of you brought up a phenomenal example, Taylor, of of cleaning the house. For me, it's like working out, you know, I, to be brutally honest with myself, right. just get vulnerable. I don't like working out. I don't, I've, I've been doing it for so many years in so many different ways. And it's rare that I will do a workout where I'm like, I really like this. Most of the time, grunting, moving, sweating, pumping iron, moving my, like, I just, there's a part of me that's like, I really do not like this. However, and and I I get bored, but (laughs) I know that my, my mental and physical health and my emotional state after the workout is for lack of a better word, the payoff. Right. So I, I know that my frame around it is like, okay, I'm going to do this thing that I know inherently I really don't enjoy. And I've really tried to enjoy it but i'm just going to acknowledge that i don't enjoy it knowing that my investment in this is going to result in me feeling you know the hormones and the euphoria and all the great feelings mentally and physically afterward i mean it, it's almost it depends there's a million al- analogies you know saving money or delaying our gratification to put in an ira or an investment account you know it's like okay i'm not going to buy that crazy car right now i'm going to delay it so that i can you know put money in toward my investment. I mean, there's a million analogies we could use, but to me, I guess it brings up the phrases is delayed happiness and not in the sense that we're depriving ourselves. But as you said, Taylor, maybe we're doing uncomfortable things because we know that by doing the uncomfortable things or the things we don't necessarily like so much are going to result in something wonderful for us. And I think that's something that people need to practice, right? Because if people hear happiness, maybe they would think, well, if I'm going to do happiness, I'm not, I'm only going to do things that make me happy. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and, and, and I don't know if that's necessarily an approach to life, right? Because there are times we need to do uncomfortable things or things that push us or crack us open or challenge us. And I don't know. I don't know if we would classify those moments as happy necessarily.
1: So- I love this. I love this. I love this. Because going back to that concept of happiness habits, there are habits that we should, could, I shouldn't say should, there are habits that we could put into place that if we did them every day would greatly impact and improve our happiness, but that doesn't mean that it's comfortable. Working out, it's not comfortable. I mean, the whole concept of working out is not comfortable. Nobody says, oh yeah, I'm going to love, like I'm so comfortable at the gym. If they're saying that, they're sitting there watching other people work out. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, yep. I'm comfortable. I'm leaning back. I'm, you know, I'm lifting my two pound weight. <laughs> like, there's just, yeah, if you're comfortable with working out, you're not pushing yourself in the working out part. So, there's that component. But happiness habits, there's a phrase that I love. Now, granted, this is my personality. I know my identity. I know who I am and my templates in the world. And this is how I thrive. This could be different for everyone else, which leans back to why it's important to know how you function in the world, what motivates you or how you can shift a perspective of something to help you get to where you need to go. But for me, my favorite phrase, I have two, but one of my favorite phrases is discipline is freedom. And that for me is everything. Like if I can be disciplined in my budgeting down the road, I have freedom. If I can be disciplined in my working out down the road, I have physical freedom. If I can be disciplined in cleaning my house down the road, I have a nice clean house that when somebody comes up to my door unexpectedly, I'm not going, oh, shit, clean, put everything under the couches and in the closets. And like, it's just like, oh, yeah, great. Yeah, come on in. Right. And that's like a silly example. But for me and my personality type, happiness habits and the discipline in doing them and discipline feels like a harsh word. If you can take away like the normal connotation of like, what discipline means traditionally and just look at it as this is an opportunity for me to set myself up for success. And that is a bigger reason over the reason of, I don't want to do this. I'm not comfortable. So that's that's my two cents on it. And this is a kind of a side note, but I don't know if you guys have heard of the Challenge 75 Hard. No. Okay. So it's this challenge by Andy Frazella. And it's, it's a free challenge, but essentially for 75 days in a row, and then there's a whole other, there's four additional or three additional phases to equal an entirety of a year. But for 75 days in a row, you work out outside for 45 minutes. You work out inside for 45 minutes. You maintain a meal plan without alcohol. You drink a gallon of water, you drink, or you, yeah, gallon of water you read 10 pages of a personal development or business book, and you take a progress picture every day. And you have to do every single one of those every day for 75 days in a row. And if you miss on one of them, you have to start all of them all back on day one. And it really is about this concept of discipline equaling freedom because I'm somebody who's done that because I told you I, I love that kind of stuff. Like, okay, yeah, well, what? how can I grow and push myself and have these habits that help me feel. It's not about necessarily pushing, but there's these things that I know will help me be happier. As Jason, you said, the delayed happiness and like the working out for a total of an hour and a half every day, it sucked. Not eating birthday cake, it sucked. <laughs> but but I had committed. And there's this concept here too, where when you commit to something, for so many of us, we're like, oh yeah, and I'm going to use eating as a like a diet type of thing because I think it's so relatable for all of us. But how many times we've we been like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut out sugars, and you tell yourself you're going to cut out sugars, but then birthday party rolls around, you're like, damn, that cake looks so good, and I know I wasn't going to eat sugars, but what is it? It's Friday. I could start on Monday. I could I could start no sugar on Monday, and then Monday rolls around, and you're kid comes in with a candy bar and is like, hey, you want a bite? And you're like, oh, you're such a good sharer. Yeah, I'll have a bite. And they're like, oh, I just ate a bite. I guess I'll I'll try again tomorrow. And it's so good that we're so resilient in trying again. But the thing is, is that every time we commit to ourselves that we are going to do something and we don't do it, whether it's because an excuse or it's uncomfortable. And like in at the birthday party, it can be uncomfortable to say, hey, I'm not eating refined sugar. And people be like, well, you're weird, right? But when every time that we say we're going to do something and we commit to ourselves to do it and we don't, the evidence side of our brain for negative stuff piles up. It says, "Well, we don't keep our word. we don't we can't trust ourselves. And if we're talking about like depression and anxiety and things like that, there's a whole library of things where we feel like we can't trust ourselves and we don't know who we are because who we are is the person who committed to something and then turned away from it. And so your brain builds that evidence on the negative side. But every time you commit to something and you do it and you have that, air quotes around this, but discipline, you're building positive stuff on the side of your brain. You're starting to feel like, hell yeah, I'm actually capable of this. And this is, you guys have listened to my show. My tagline is you are capable of happiness abound. It is that way very specifically because for so many of us, we don't even feel like we're capable of happiness or we're capable of losing the weight or we're capable of getting the raise or whatever that may be. There's this deep belief that we may not be capable. And the way to feel capable is to start taking action and building that positive evidence in our brains. And then when you feel capable, you start to feel like kind of qualified. and we start to feel kind of qualified, then you really feel qualified. And then you start to feel confident. And once you hit confidence, there's no stopping you. But that's an ongoing process. So cycling all the way back to this, I believe there's definitely freedom and having discipline and making those choices for your best self in the future, while also appreciating and enjoying the successes today
2: beautiful Taylor, thank you for that. What comes up for me okay and and I'm curious if you do this is an accountability partner because I still am challenged by uh holding myself accountable if I don't tell someone else or say, enroll an accountability partner or have somebody, I don't necessarily need somebody to do the same thing with me. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, that you did 75 hard, uh, Andy Frizzella's challenge. Did you have an accountability partner or someone like, you know, cheerleading you on holding you accountable, or I guess in general, when you're going toward new goals, big goals, things you feel really challenged by, how do you navigate holding yourself accountable? And do you bring a, pr- a person into, to help you with that?
1: I love this because I had mentioned in the identity component talking about that about Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies framework.
0: Yes. Oh, I'm so excited you brought this up because <laughs> I'm obsessed with the four tendency. I, you know, there was a moment like a few minutes ago where I was like, I really want to ask Taylor what her tendency is, but if she hasn't taken it, then I'll be awkward. Wait, what's your tendency? Uh, yes. I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I, I
1: bet you could guess it based off our discussion so far.
0: Well, you sound a lot like me in a lot of ways, so I I immediately was like, I bet you were the same tendency. I'm a questioner, and that's what I would guess you are? I'm actually
1: an upholder.
0: Oh, okay. But I lean, like, you know how there's like the
1: Venn diagram, and so it's like the, the upholder can lean towards questioner or obliger tendencies, Yep. and so like my analytic mind and like this, okay, here's a framework, let's piece this together, and my strategic mind is very questioner, and then I also... Uh, Jason, in terms of like the obliger piece, I do well when people know what's going on, but I also, as a true upholder, I'm okay committing to myself that I'll do it. But so 75 hard as an example, this is like the perfect segue. Um, So 75 hard, I planned my completion of 75 hard a month before I started it. So for an entire (laughs) month,
0: I love like, that.
1: <laughs> I know so many people that are like, I'm going to do that. And they're like, start in three days. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I want you to be successful. Take a minute. Because it's 75 days of eating like a meal plan. Not like you have to figure out, are there, is there an area for loopholes? Is like, okay, if I'm at a birthday party, do I not have the cake? Do like, oh, 4th of July is coming up, whatever that may be. And you have to kind of figure it out. So I was a full month of being like, okay, what food, how do I function? So my brain goes okay I do really well with structure. So I'm actually not going to stick to a like diet per se like I know people who have completed it that were like oh I was just vegan. And they also put a loophole of like I'm vegan and I think Oreos actually are vegan, but I'm vegan and I can eat Oreos as my desserts if I want if they're available. Okay great. So for me I'm like I can't do that because if I do something like keto, I'm like, okay, is corn keto? I don't know. And the more I have to think about it and the more I have to like research or worry about it, the less likely I am to succeed. And I know that about myself. So I took a month going, what can I eat for 75 days straight that I won't get sick of that's going to be healthy and it's going to help me have the mental and emotional clarity that I want?
0: I love that. That's actually a really great tactic, but it, it's interesting because I wonder if some people would find resistance with the planning because I get excited about planning. I'm, I'm like you where I really love structuring things, looking ahead, but I've noticed that a lot of people don't enjoy that and that becomes a place of resistance for them. So what do they do in that case? That is a, a, an incredibly interesting piece of
1: information there because I think that the resistance to planning is a fear of failure Like if if I planned it and I took the time, I took a month, not saying everybody has to take a month. I just went over the top. But let's say two weeks. I took two weeks to plan how I was going to be successful at this. If I didn't succeed, I would feel like I wasted not only that whole time, but also the two weeks. And so I'm afraid I'm going to fail. So I'm not going to plan it. And then when I do fail, I can go, well, I didn't even plan it. So it wasn't that important to me. No big deal. Hmm.
0: Well, this is interesting, too, because I just looked up some information about the obliger. And well, before I get into this, can you guess what Jason's tendency is, Taylor? I would think obliger.
2: Oh, of the, interesting. Because the
0: accountability piece.
2: <laughs> interesting.
1: <laughs> what are you? Are you an upholder with obliger tendencies?
2: No, I, I am definitely in the rebel category.
1: Oh, yeah, for
0: sure.
2: It's an interesting thing because I've noticed that My entire life, I mean, as young as I can remember, you know, confirming with my mom, I just have had a, well, first of all, a healthy disrespect for authority in general, (laughs) which has been an interesting part of the journey. But beyond that, I've always been very good at improvisation and not just comedy, although I did study that, but being able to make things up on the spot, feeling very confident going with the flow, feeling very confident, just whatever I make up in the moment is going to be great. But there are things like finances and meal planning, and uh, there's a lot of things in life that one could improvise, but I've had to really work on structure, planning, planning, consistency because I thrive so much in the improvisational space and there are things in life that are not necessarily skewed toward being optimal if you're just making it up on the fly. So that, that's been my challenge in life is as a naturally rebellious person who just makes things up, how do I be more systematic? So that's been, that's been a huge learning process for me.
1: See, I love that though, because if you came to me and you said, hey, I, actually, so my clients that I work with, this is the, one of the things I have them do is I'm like, okay, what is your learning style? And what is your tendency? Take these quizzes. And then I know, okay, this person's a rebel. So not saying I coach on 75 hard because I don't, I teach happiness. But if you want to do 75 hard, I would say, okay, so let's take a week and I want you to plan out yourself with options. So we're having a meal plan. I actually want you to have three meal plans you can choose between. You're oh, having, smart. you're having a workout. Nope. I want you to have five workouts you can choose between. So every day you can still have that structure and that consistency, but you have the choice because rebels don't like the confines, right? They don't like feeling like they're controlled. So yes. you can control and set yourself up systematically for that tenancy, which is why it's so important to know your functions and templates in the world, because you can now set yourself up for success going, oh yeah, I'm a rebel. So this isn't going to work for me with this one option. So I'm going to get my I'm going to give myself 3, and every day I can pick between that. I could shift halfway through in the middle and improv and be like, I said I was going to run and one of my other options is yoga. I've ran for 20 minutes and I'm tired of running and this sucks. Maybe I'll just shift to yoga. And there's no you're in control there, but you're still setting yourself up for structurally success.
2: Yeah, I mean I already feel better even you just like outlining that. I was like, "Oh, yeah, options. Options, yes." yes.
1: Because rebels it's not about at least to my understanding, the four tendencies rebels is not about like you despise authority. It's a fear, not not even a fear. You just naturally don't like to be controlled. And the hard part is for some rebels, even you don't like to, you don't like your situation to be controlled by yourself. So if you're, if you feel like this is another thing with the world, this is the single path of success and you have to keep on doing this otherwise you're going to be a failure or you're not going to be happy or whatever it is if we're taught and told that there's just one way which we have been societal checklist for a lot of us a that's not true there's not just one way but for rebels particularly that can be really really hard because in you're ingrained in your brain there's only one way but you need options you need multiple ways for you to be successful so understanding that about yourself is everything in understanding like, okay, if we're talking happiness habits. I'm going to use the example again, like clients I work with. If I'm working with rebels, it's not here's your one action item. It's here's your three action items to choose between and just let me know every day or let me know at the end of the week. Like uh, there's no pressure of like a, you have to let me know and do this this one way because I know that won't work for rebels and they need to be set up for success. Questioners, I explain things in super detail and answer all their questions and have no problem explaining the science behind it or the reason why we're doing this, the mindset, all these components, because they need all those questions answered. Yes, we do. Yeah, you (laughs) totally do. Because if you're not, if you don't have those answered, you're not going to do it because it doesn't have enough justification for you.
0: Yep. And then
1: if you look at obligers, I definitely want to provide options and all those other things, but it can be as simple as, hey, do this let me know how it goes. And something as simple as let me know, now they are like, okay, yeah, I need to let you know. And this is going to help me. And they have that accountability component to help them progress in their lives. And then upholders, it's pretty much, hey, just do this. And then they do it. (laughs) I can say that because I am one. I'm like, uh, my problem, one of my downsides as an uh, upholder is like, I just accept rules blindly. And so one of the things I love about me having a questioner mentality in some components is that I can be like, okay, well, wait a minute. What is the, what's actually happening here? Mm. But Jason, I feel you like that's just give yourself options, give yourself the opportunity to have that structure, but knowing that you can pivot at any point in time and you just have choices between to choose between.
2: Yeah. I'm I'm glad that you reinforced that, Taylor. I, I think for me, the one area that that's been really challenging has been with career choices in the sense that I've had a lot of, when I was younger, I had a lot of jobs and I've had, two, I've already had two careers in my life and I'm already at a third kind of pivot point where I'm reimagining and re-landscaping what I'm doing. And, and, you know, there, there's been feelings of, I don't know about shame, but I don't know, maybe shame and guilt sometimes for me of like, oh, but you, same thing you said, you know, you had to pick one thing, right? Like all your heroes, they just picked one thing and did it and did it well. And here you are like in the third act of your, your life, picking kind of a new, a new direction, and it's been interesting, but the way you're phrasing it, it, it makes sense because it resonates with my personality is I'll fixate on something. I'll get really, really deep into it, whether it's career related or even if it's just a hobby or a passion, and I will devour it, devour it. And then I'm like, oh, I'm done now. And people are like, you can't be done. This is your career. This is your thing. You're invested in this, and this is what we real. I'm like, no, I'm done. And so it's interesting to just acknowledge when I'm honestly done with things and ready for something new and not resisting that or making myself feel guilty or shameful for it.
1: 100%. And I think there's also this concept. So I have a book club, a personal development book club. And in it right now, we are reading Marie Folio's Everything is outable." And this yes. morning- I literally read her talk about being a multi-passionate entrepreneur and that opening up the door for her not feeling like a failure and feeling like she could step into the things that she enjoyed doing because it just meant she had she was multi-passionate. And the thing is, is all the stuff that you have learned in those career choices have shaped the career choices and who you are today. Like I look back at my own life. So I started out, my first job was like doing silk screening and printing. But then I got into radio. Then I became a wedding planner, ran my own business. And if I look at it, okay, so radio gave me the opportunity and ability to communicate very well. Then I became a wedding planner. You have to communicate very well, but also that pulled in project management and a whole bunch of other things. Then I decided I didn't want to be a wedding planner anymore. We had moved and it's like starting over. And I was like, what's my favorite thing about being a wedding planner? And it was actually the marketing. So I got a job in marketing. And then now, everything I've learned in marketing and pulling from radio and project development and being a business owner and all those pieces have played into being a happiness mentor now. They're all skills and things that like are completely disconnected. But as a multi-passionate entrepreneur, I can pull them all together and to have a unique business that is ideal for me to run at an optimal and top level to help as many people as possible.
2: I think that's wonderful. It 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 gets me thinking like, how to create this unique amalgam as you said of your experiences and your you know your life lessons and what you've studied and and ultimately though passion to me is the anchor of that right it's what makes our hearts sing you know what really really brings us a deep level of joy and i i think at the beginning you know there's been this idea of like pick your word for the year uh and <laughs> funnily enough with with the backdrop of everything going on my word for the year for 2020 is joy. Because I realized that for a long time, I was operating in service of bringing others joy and really focusing on that and reducing their suffering. But I was not focusing on my own joy in being of service to others. And I remember last year, maybe around the fall of 2019, I caught myself and I I had this like aha moment. I was with my mentor, Michael, And it was like, I've been so focused externally on bringing joy and reducing the suffering of others that I lost the plot a little bit and stopped focusing on what brings me joy and what what I'm passionate about.
0: You know, it's interesting that you bring up that desire to reduce the suffering of others, which I think has been a huge thing for us both personally and professionally And I think we might have even put it in our bio or our website description or something. And then as I've been reading The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, Mark Manson talks about how suffering is actually really important. And this is something that I've been paying a lot of attention to. It keeps coming up in books that I'm reading or practices that I'm doing. And it's a bit of a a Buddhist philosophy as well as like, instead of trying to reduce or stop suffering, it's more like allowing yourself to sit with it and not run away with it and just let it pass when it passes. And I've been really reflecting recently on how both you and I Jason and and maybe Taylor too like this desire to, like how can I help people feel happier, you know, so many people want to be happy, but I'm also finding and actually Taylor I'm c- super curious about how this plays into your career too is that Maybe the mission isn't about reducing suffering. It's allowing ourselves to feel suffering as well as the joy because we need both. That's actually the section that I'm on in the book right now is how like pain is really important, just like Taylor was talking about in terms of working out, right? Is like maybe pain isn't the best word. Like, I don't think that you want to feel pain. Like, there's a difference between. Something feeling hard versus painful because sometimes when you're working out, pain is an indication you shouldn't be doing something like your body's trying to give you a signal. But it's like it's okay to struggle when you're working out because if you allow yourself to struggle versus trying to run away from that and like finding that pleasure, if you allow yourself to feel some of that quote pain while working out, that's where you grow, that's where you get stronger, right? So I've just been thinking a lot about that in terms of rephrasing things and not making it about avoiding suffering, but allowing suffering as well as the joy. I love that
1: so much because I completely agree. There's a set of emotions that we have, because here's the thing. If you look at the term of suffering, it's attached to emotion. We don't look at suffering, let's say quarantine happening right now, right? There's a lot of people suffering. But they're suffering, the suffer is attached to the emotion of they're feeling lonely, isolated, sad, depressed, anxious. They're all feeling these feelings that are connected to struggle or connected to pain. And so I think there's this concept of if we can pull up a little bit, I teach a method called clear, which stands for circumstance, language, emotions, actions, and results. And every circumstance is neutral. It's a language that you use that surrounds a circumstance that feeds the emotions, that feeds the actions, that feeds the results, right? So if we look at a situation that is painful or struggling, we're attaching thoughts and emotions to that to have it be painful or struggling. Now, I'm talking painful like emotional pain, obviously not physical. If you broke your leg, you broke your leg. That's a a situation that's obviously painful, but emotionally, we look at these things as painful... And we attach this emotion of painful or these thoughts of this is painful to a neutral circumstance. So I think that that's an interesting thing that we do, but then we try to run away from. So we don't want to feel the pain. We don't want to feel those negative emotions. And negative is air quotes because it's all, it's all your perspective. But we don't want to feel those. So we try to hide from them instead of focus on them. And that is why we have such a huge influx of uh, there's six buffering techniques that people use and like the least common is drug use, but we still have drug use. Over drinking. Yeah, people do that. Overeating. United States is one of the most obese nations in the world. Binge watching. There's a reason why Netflix just got 10 million new users in the last month excessive gaming, whether it's on your phone or on like a console or streaming service, and excessive scrolling on social media. Those are all things that we do to buffer from feeling the negative emotions to help us feel numb so we don't have to feel the negative emotions. But the problem is is that when we feel numb, we don't feel the positive emotions either. So it can't be a dismissal of the pain and the struggle and those negative emotions attached to that. It has to be, how can I feel through this? How can I identify it? First off, how can I identify what I'm feeling? Then how can I understand why I'm feeling this way? And then how can I move back to the other side of the spectrum and understand that now I know what that feels like, or I understand why, and I can make the shifts and adjustments to come back to the other side and feel those more positive emotions. But I completely agree we have to be able to feel those emotions because the more that we try to suppress them, we have to express them because if you suppress them, it just builds up and builds up and builds up and builds up. And then we have a society that, like we have, which is unhappy, depressed, and anxious long before COVID even happened.
0: Right. That actually reminds me of a Brene Brown quote. She said, we cannot selectively numb emotions. When we numb the painful emotions, we also numb the positive emotions. Vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weaknesses. Exactly. Wow. Did you have that from memory? No, I wish. <laughs> this is me uh, behind the scenes looking things up. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say
1: uh, part of my one of the first books we read in the book club was Rising Strong, and I was like, I remember that quote,
0: but holy cow, girl! Like, <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a memory. Yeah, I mean, I I adore her, and and she actually talked about that in. This wonderful presentation you can listen to it's like a or a workshop that she did. I forget exactly what it was called, but it was about spirituality and vulnerability and strength and and that really stuck with me because she, in her research, she found this that we just can't be selective if that there that's the big downside to trying to numb ourselves and i I think a lot of people do that is we have a society, especially in America where it's like very acceptable to drink a lot, as you were saying, like to all of these different things, the binge watching and the drinking and the, and there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. I do those things sometimes too. I mean, I think a lot of us do those on tough days. We reward ourselves with food or an activity, or we say that we deserved it. We earned it, you know, all of those different mentalities. But if we step back and really tune into ourselves, sometimes what we need is not those things. What we need might be to cry. What we need might be to move our bodies or go outside. And there's all these alternatives that we can turn to. And going back to what Jason was bringing up earlier, which was about that never-ending journey of, of self-discovery, I think I enjoy a lot of that because I enjoy finding alternatives. and And similar to also what you were saying, Taylor, it's like that preparation of well, I always know a number of different foods I can turn to. So if I, instead of maybe eating some processed junk food, I could turn to this food that is more nutritious for me and also makes me feel good. And and because I've experimented with a lot of different ways of eating, I have this like roster of food I can turn to or exercises. I mean, going back to what Jason was saying, I get bored in my exercises too. And so one of my techniques is to have a number of different types of exercises to choose from. So I'm committed to exercising every day, but it doesn't have to be the same thing over and over again. And when I find myself in a like emotional funk and wanting to turn to something n- to numb myself or a coping mechanism, I can kind of go through all of these different things that I've tried and, and just do one of them and see how I feel instead of allowing myself to just give in to all of these, like, easier things, as you were saying, too, Taylor. But then on the other end, it's, it's kind of like that moderation mentality where, of course, I allow myself to binge watch TV every now and then. And I don't shame myself for it. I don't allow myself to, like, get in that spiral of feeling like, oh, like, I can't believe I'm, I watch hours of television. Like, this is awful. As long as I don't do that too regularly. And as long as I remind myself that there are other ways to feel better that might have a, a longer-term benefit, such as exercise. When entertainment turns to escape,
1: that is when it's emotional buffering.
0: Ooh, that's, that's a little quotable phrase <laughs> <Frames laughs> right there. I like that. But it's true. Yeah, we all... We
1: all have some sugary foods or we all go – I can't tell you how many times in my life. I've gone to the fridge because I'm bored, right? If you open it up and you're like, there's nothing here and you close it and 10 minutes later, you open it up again. And that's like – that's an emotional (laughs) – it's an emotional buffering though. Like you don't want to feel the boredom so you're trying to find something to eat, right? But it's when it goes from specifically around binge watching, scrolling uh, on social media, gaming, alcohol – even recreation drug use, like when it goes from entertainment to escape, that is when it has crossed the line from entertainment to emotional buffering and trying to ignore and numb what's happening.
2: I think for for me, Taylor, when you say that, what comes up is uh, my state of being when I'm doing that activity. And, And as an example, years ago, I had this link that I had discovered within myself, which is that... Whenever I was at home alone, feeling lonely, depressed, heartbroken, isolated, those emotions, I remember having this moment in my kitchen at the place I lived before I lived in the house I'm in now, where I was reaching for a pint of ice cream. And I was so lonely, and I was you know, on the tail end of a breakup and healing from that and all this. And I had this moment where I was like, you're not eating because you're going to enjoy this ice cream. You're eating because you're lonely and your heart hurts. And it was this moment of like, wow. Okay. So my state of being matters a lot when I'm making these kinds of choices. As you said, if I'm, you know, rewatching, you know, Star Wars for the millionth time, am I doing it because I feel joyful about it? Or am I doing it because I don't want to look at my anger issues? Am I eating this entire pint of ice cream? Because i 'm enjoying this chocolate rocky road a la mode, or i 'm doing it because my heart 's broken and i 'm lonely and i don 't have a partner and so i 've noticed that when my state of being is joyful, positive, happy, contented, and i 'm enjoying the proverbial ice cream it 's a much different experience, not just emotionally but how my body assimilates and uses that food or interprets the movie or interprets the music, and my state of being has everything to do with it and it's it's a huge difference and i I'm trying to be more mindful every time I sit down to a meal or sit down to take in a movie, music, information of whether or not I'm doing it because I'm excited and joyful or I'm doing it, as you said, because I want to somehow avert some uncomfortable or painful emotion that I actually need to sit with and experience.
0: I think that is so profound. And I love seeing in the chat, Taylor, that you said that you um, like cans of frosting. (laughs) And for the listener, I I hope I didn't just out you, Taylor, but uh, (laughs) we have a little chat window where we can communicate with one another when somebody else is speaking. And and I I love that you dropped that in there, there, Taylor. And just reading the word frosting immediately makes me want some. (laughs) 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 <laughs> that sounds so good. As well as Rocky Road, Jason. When you said Rocky Road, I'm like, gosh, that sounds good. And this is the thing. I mean, coming back to alternatives, this has been a big passion of mine for many years. Is is introducing people to different alternatives for things because we are blessed and very privileged. At, again, in the United States, especially, but in many parts of the world, we have so many options so many things that we can have that almost replicate the experience of something that we might perceive as negative. Like when you think of Rocky Road, for example, there's so many different versions of Rocky Road. There's the dairy based Rocky Road ice cream and there's the vegan version. And then there's probably a sugar free vegan version of it and a gluten free vegan. version. you know, it's like I think that that's really neat. And one thing I like to encourage people to is that you don't have to go cold turkey. It's like when a lot of people transition into a plant-based diet, they tend to eat things that remind them of animal products. And we call this like the junk food stage of veganism, which is not meant to be judgmental. It's just that there's a lot of nutritious things that you can eat, but a lot of people tend to want to eat like For me, it was uh, (laughs) Morningstar. When I went vegan in 2003, I was hooked on like all these Morningstar products that replicated chicken and ribs. I don't know if they still make this, but they used to make these microwavable vegetarian or vegan like ribs. And like, that was the stuff that brought me joy, even though it was really processed food. I'm not even sure if those were vegan. It might have been when I was just vegetarian. But my point being, it's like that was part of my transition. And over time, I could let go of my attachment to meat and like uh, slowly learn about less processed, more nutritious foods. And every once in a while, I know that I can go and have a vegan fried chicken like you better believe that as soon as KFC has their vegan chick fried chicken, which is going to be out in California any day now, I'm going to go have it, even though normally I wouldn't be caught dead at KFC. But like, I want to go experience it because it's fun and it brings me joy. It's not something I'm going to do all the time, but like, I like to have that alternative. I like to know that that's there for me. And then being able to encourage other people to go try it. And what a cool thing! Like. I mean, just as a little side note, how amazing that KFC now is going to have vegan chicken. Like, talk about an alternative. And I've said this to people during my well-being coaching. It's like, I think a lot of people want to jump such a huge gap. They want to go from like where they are now to where they want to be. And it might be so far apart from one another that that's where a lot of failure and resistance can come up, right? It's like you try to make this leap, but you fall short. And now now you've lost your confidence and your ability to do it. And one easy swap is that if you are somebody that goes to KFC right now, but you're like, Hmm, I really want to stop eating animal products, but I'm addicted to the taste and the experience of going to KFC. Like how amazing that you can just, still go to KFC but have the vegan version there or like all of these other chains that are now offering those things sure they might be processed and and I know like vegans are really up in arms right now about supporting a business like KFC cuz they there's so much ethically tied into that decision but for some people it's just closing that gap a little bit. So, whether it's food or well being or any of these lifestyle choices and just kind of shifting your routine. I mean, even it depends, going back to the personality, Taylor. Like, I'm somebody that when you talked about that 75 hard, like, I'm all in, right? <laughs> like, that sounds so cool. But for some people, 75 days is super daunting. And that's why it's so neat that you shared that technique of preparing and maybe easing yourself into those 75 days. And in a way, the fact that that program has that rule of if you miss a day, you have to start over. Like, what's so bad about that? Like, maybe maybe you don't do it perfectly and you just begin again. And I think that's a really important thing for us psychologically as well. Absolutely. I love that. Jason, I'm curious how you feel about KFC, too, for a little side note.
2: <laughs> That's a very... <laughs> this turned into a very strange tangent.
0: I know. I just need to know. Very
2: strange. Uh, I'm not going to go. Yeah.
0: And is it an ethical thing for you?
2: No, it's that I know that I eat that. It's going to make me feel like shit, and I oh, don't want to do it.
0: true. Fair enough. See, but these are the things you have to learn about yourself. <laughs> like, it, might, it might not be... Worth it in the way that Rocky Road ice cream is for you, Jason.
2: No, but legit though, this is an interesting thing because because psychologically, if we get back to this state of being thing, I know that if I go have a, a, whatever, a bucket of vegan chicken or a pint of ice cream or what whatever the case is, my body, I guess, over time has become so sensitive. And no, you know what? Maybe not that. Maybe it's more that I'm listening to my body better. I think that's more of what it is. Is that I know that if I eat certain things, I will get a momentary pleasure from it, but I will feel like absolute shit afterward. And, and I'm at the point in my life where I don't want the temporary pleasure because the payoff isn't worth it to me. And I'm looking at how else in my life, for instance, uh, looking at my spending habits, which I've been taking a very hard look at during, during quarantine and COVID of, of really re-landscaping my finances and where my money is going and how many purchases I've made over the years, right? Where it was like that temporary euphoria, but then I felt like shit afterward. So I, I know that might've been like, it's a teachable moment about KFC. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but for me, in all seriousness though, I'm trying to look at my life that way of where else am I maybe defaulting to, Yeah, yay, yeah, yay, yeah, this tastes good. And then you know the next day I feel like absolute crap over the decision I made.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, that is a very important element. And this isn't about KFC, really. I'm just using this as an example. But, you know, it's funny because in my head, I'm like, that just sounds so fun and exciting. And, you know, like I said, I I just like experimenting and trying new things. But it hadn't even really occurred to me, Jason, that I might feel like shit after eating that food. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes you get so excited about something you forget about the potential consequences or the side effects of it. And that's so important, too. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious. That's a huge part of my personality is I just have so much curiosity. I, I just want to try something once and be done with it. Uh, so maybe I'll just have a couple bites and, and share it with somebody and get the vegan KFC experience out of my system. <laughs> and I think that's, that's part of it, too, is each of us are just in all these different places with experimenting and trying to figure out what works for us. And I love that you, Jason, have developed that confidence and that self-awareness. And it's kind of like setting boundaries for yourself and communicating them to other people like, hey, you know what, at this stage, I'm not even willing to go try something because I know it's not going to make me feel good, right? Or I assume it's going to based on the information I've collected. And, and that's a boundary that is really good for your mental health, it sounds like. So it actually is a teachable moment in a lot of ways. Well, this has been such an incredible conversation, Taylor, and it's been such a joy to have you on here. And I certainly feel like I kind of wish that we were all hanging out right now drinking. I don't know if you drink, but like I would love to have a glass of wine and sit outside and enjoy the summer and, and just be in nature, maybe in Utah with you. Gosh, I, I would love to travel again. Jason and I actually went to Utah last August, 2019. We drove through Utah to go to Colorado and there's a video that I've been working on from that trip that I can't wait to share. And I'll post that in the show notes for the listener if you're curious to see it. And Utah is just such a phenomenal state. So I wish I could like snap my fingers and transport myself there with a a glass of organic vegan wine and (laughs) continue this conversation. (laughs) Uh, Me too. I
1: I actually don't drink, but I would be happy to have one of my gallons of water with 75 hard and sit back with you and just totally keep on talking and hanging out. It's been such a joy and honor to chat with you guys and to be on the show. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, speaking of not drinking, so is water your beverage of choice? Do you drink coffee or tea? I'm always curious about what people drink and don't drink. So, well, I am actually very similar
1: to Jason in I, I know what makes me feel gross and what doesn't. And so actually, yeah, water is pretty much all I drink soda ever since I was a little kid. And some people say I'm not officially diagnosed or anything, but some people say that it's a sign of like ADHD. If, if caffeine depresses you and caffeine takes me out, I like, it makes me so like loopy and sad and mentally it's not good for me. Yeah, so I I drink water and maybe maybe the occasional lemonade, but I also know that for me personally, refined sugars this is a thing too. It's not even physical or mental in terms of like speed or anything like that, but when I have refined sugars, my emotional capacity is like way low. I lose my temper at the drop of a hat and we I shared my story that used to be all the time. Now it's very few and far between. But if I eat refined sugars within the next 24 hours, every little thing sets me off and has me like grumbling in my mind about how stupid this is or whatever it is. So like I don't do refined sugars if I can help it. I drink just water because caffeine and other types of beverages usually make me really sad and depressed. I've And another thing is garlic. Uh, Jason, <laughs> Jason, you might like totally cringe, but you also might know this. If you have an intolerance to garlic, it can take anywhere between 20 minutes to 24 hours before that intolerance comes and like hits your body and your system.
2: Wow. So
1: I had a garlic intolerance. I've had a garlic intolerance that I didn't know I had for pretty much my whole life. And in testing and trialing food and being like, I feel like crap, what is going on? Every time I'd have something with garlic. It would wreck me and I would be like so my brain would be so foggy. I could breathe because it was an intolerance, not an allergy, but I would be like like every two seconds because I just like couldn't get enough air and like I felt bloated and I would just be sick and my brain would be like, We need to go to sleep. It would shut me down. And so I finally and it would be so weird because I'd have something with garlic in twenty minutes I'd be like that. Have something with garlic twenty hours I'd be like that. And so I couldn't quite figure it out and finally I decided just to cut out garlic to see and game changer. Because I'm like, yeah, I can't, I don't eat stuff with garlic because it makes me, it makes me so, and sick is not the right word, but it just, it like, it takes me out and I can't, can't do it. So I love that both of you are so food conscious and I'm not food conscious in terms of like, I, I don't say I'm vegan, but like, I don't really eat meat. I'm pretty much vegetarian. My 75 hard was all vegetarian and no sugar, no dairy and very, very limited grains because I've tested out so many things that I know where I'm at my peak function. And I think that's such an ideal thing to not, it's not necessarily directly correlated to happiness, but I do think it is fairly close where if you can be mentally, emotionally and physically at your best based off of what you're eating or what you're doing, your happiness is so much easier because you're already in a space where you're willing to try and test and figure out how you can be at your best and your happiest self.
0: Yes, I love that. Well, I'm super curious since you're so into water. Do you drink sparkling water? Are you into that at all? No, I'm so lame. I I I literally <laughs> just have like a gallon it's a, I had to get a
1: gallon jug because part of yep. my part of my month of planning was I won't succeed if I have to count liters yes. or quarts or any of that so I got a gallon water bottle and it's funny cuz I have people that are like how can you drink water that's been out all day? It has to be cold. I'm like, actually <laughs> And it's so funny because I know myself, I'm like, actually, when I drink cold water, I actually get really, really cold in my body and I'm miserable. So this is really nice for me because I can just drink my gallon of water and I'm fine. I have nothing against sparkling water. Like, it's great. But (laughs) my drink of choice is that I'm, I'm a water girl.
0: (laughs) I think that's amazing. Like, it's funny how we can feel like embarrassed about sides of ourselves, but in, in a way, like we would benefit from drinking mostly water. I mean, I love coffee. I developed a massive passion for coffee over the past few years. It, it was something I had no interest in, in for most of my life. And then suddenly something shifted. And it's tricky because coffee is one of those things where you have to really be mindful. There's so many Mm. factors when it comes to choosing what coffee you're going to have. And certain coffees make me feel worse. And some coffees, I feel great. And it's actually a very complex subject matter. But it's also one of those things from a health standpoint where there's a lot of different perspectives on like the impacts of caffeine, specifically coffee. And it's something that I allow myself to indulge in. And unlike the two of you, Jason has this in common with you, Taylor, where he's very sensitive to coffee, the caffeine in coffee, although he can generally have caffeinated tea very well. Jason obviously jump into this. But I'm somebody who, even though I'm very sensitive to a lot of things like you, Taylor, I discovered ton of food sensitivities that I've had probably my whole life. Had no idea about until I started experimenting and tuning into my body and feel so much better when I don't eat certain foods. But for some reason, I'm not sensitive to the caffeine and coffee most of the time. Sometimes there's an exception uh, depending on the brand and the type. But um. Anyways, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. And I have to really be mindful about drinking water and creating different practices. I too have carried around like really big water bottles and filled them up. And I go through phases where I have to drink the entire bottle by the end of every day, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, I, I actually, I think it's really neat that that's what you drink mainly.
1: Thank you. And I think, too, if I was to put a bow on this whole conversation, I think it all comes down to all of us are different and an understanding of who you are, how you are in the world, what works for you, and leaning into that and testing and trialing and figuring that out, whether it's food, whether it's happiness, whether it's your workouts, whether it's setting yourself up for success. Everybody is so different, but we can all learn from each other and we can all test and trial to be at our best selves regardless of what the concept behind it is.
2: That was a fantastic bow. Taylor, it was such an absolute pleasure having you here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. We did get very uncomfortable and and vulnerable, and we just appreciate you showing up and being yourself and, and giving us all of the wonderful gifts and tools that you have. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. So for anyone who wants to dig deeper into Taylor's amazing work in the world, you can go to her website, which is happinessabound.com. We will have the link to that in our show notes for this episode at wellevator.com and all the wonderful resources, the books, the videos, everything we referenced today, you will find in the show notes along with Taylor's links to her social media platforms on Instagram, Facebook, and all the wonderful places you can find more of her work around finding out what your happiness is and how to live that every single day. Conversely, we have some great uh, resources as well. On our website, we just released an ebook recently that you can download for free. Just go to our website, welllevator.com to the resources section, free resources, and you will find From Chaos to Calm, which is our 12 favorite ways to deal with stress, depression, anxiety, and uncertainty, not just during this crazy precarious time, but any time during our human existence. And you can also find us on all of the social media platforms on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Pinterest, and Twitter at Wellevator. Once again, wellevat com. Thanks for being with us, Taylor, Whitney. This was amazing as usual. And dear listener, thank you for being with us on This Might Get Uncomfortable. And we'll see you again. We'll see you again. That's so weird. See, We can't even see anyone. We'll be with you again soon. (laughs) Thanks so much.
1: Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.